When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus in biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Danielle Whitaker about the new book, The Secret Perfume of Birds, Uncovering the Science of Avian Scent. The untold story of a stunning discovery, not only that can birds uh, smell, but their sense may be the secret to understanding the world. The secret perfume of birds will interest anyone looking to learn about more about birds, about how animals and humans use our senses, and about why it can sometimes take a rebel scientist to change what we think we know for sure about the world and ourselves. Well, Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So how are you? How was your week? Not bad. I'm uh, recovering from a half marathon I ran last weekend, uh, but that went well. So it was a nice, uh, nice time. Oh, wow. Impressive. <laughs> okay. So can you tell us what do you do? I'm currently the managing director for the Center, Center for Oldest Ice Exploration called Coldex at, the Oregon, at Oregon State University. Um, I've just started working here a few months ago, actually. So I help... Uh, keep the center and its research going. And what did you study during your postgraduate uh, uh, days? <laughs> well, I've had quite an uh, interesting path. Uh, in graduate school, I did my PhD in physical anthropology. So I was studying primate behavior, conservation, and genetics. I've uh, definitely done a few different things since then. Oh, wow. That's a very interesting um, uh, sort of collection of subjects. And how did you arrive to having so so many different ones, if I can say so? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the, the different uh, work with the primates all kind of goes together. Um, so I was studying um, how gibbons uh, evolved. Um, I was particularly looking at Colossus gibbons in the Mentawi Islands of Indonesia, and I was interested in um, their conservation status, you know, how many were left, um, and that involved uh, studying who they were um, related to as well, so what other species of gibbons they were related to, so I had to collect fecal samples to take uh, to, as DNA samples so I could um, sequence them, and I also um, surveyed them in a lot of different places, um, and was interested in their behavior, which I didn't really get to study, which is actually uh, the main reason why I changed fields entirely when I went to my postdoc. I was really interested in animal behavior, and it, uh, it's much easier to work with birds in North America than primates in Southeast Asia. So that was the immediate reason for my change of topic. And during your journey, did you have mentors that really supported you? I really did, yeah. Um, in particular, my postdoc. So I changed to uh, studying bird biology at Indiana University, and I worked with Dr. Ellen Ketterson, and she was a wonderful mentor who really helped change the direction of my life. She was very supportive um, and incredibly supportive of me following completely new directions, and she was a great inspiration and a great example of how to be like a, a good person in science and how to be a good mentor. And what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers? 
Oh, I would say, you know, follow what interests you. Um, treat your research uh, not as a means to an end, but as an end in itself. You know, what you're doing matters. It's not just a step to get somewhere else. Excellent. So your latest book is The Secret Perfume of Birds, Uncovering the Science of Avian Scent. So how did you come to writing it? <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of a, a long story as well. Um, so uh, to get to write the book itself, I was actually approached by my editor. Uh, she was looking for more women authors uh, for Johns Hopkins University Press. And she had done some research looking up current scientists and she found me and thought my research was interesting. Um, and I'd actually always wanted to write a book. Uh, I was actually an English major in college. Uh, I studied literature for years before I turned to science. So I felt like I had a pretty good background in, um, in writing and, and writing for the public. So I was really excited to have the opportunity. Um, in terms of why I wrote this particular book, uh, I guess that's a longer story. Uh, we, we can talk about that now. Um, so I study how birds use their sense of smell. And when I say that to a lot of scientists, they kind of look a little bit surprised and say, oh, I didn't know birds had a sense of smell. Uh, so this is a, a longstanding myth, um, both in public and in science, that birds don't have a sense of smell, but there's actually no basis, no scientific basis for that statement. This came about when I was an, a young grad student uh, back in about 2008. I was interested in something else entirely, and somebody happened to, that, somebody happened to say to me, oh, you know, birds don't even have a sense of smell. So I don't know why you would study this other thing. And I was like, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so, you know, as I was saying before, I had studied primates in graduate school. So I didn't have a background in ornithology and I had never heard this. Um, so, but I thought, why would this whole group of animals lose something as important as their sense of smell? Uh, so I really started digging into it and I started doing experiments and I wasn't the only person at the time doing this. Um, this was becoming a topic of research. And it's it's simply not true. Birds do have a perfectly good sense of smell, uh, but the myth persists. And so it just seemed like a good opportunity to share my research and the research with others on this topic with uh, the general public. Oh, that's truly fascinating. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right, so let's dive into the book. And can we start with the very basics? So could you describe to us, how does the smell work? Oh, sure. Um, birds, you know, they use uh, their sense of smell basically the same way we do. Um, there are um, volatile particles in the air, so small chem airborne chemicals. And when those enter the nasal passages, um, you've got uh, this what's called an olfactory epithelium. It's basically a mucus layer on the inside of your nose. Birds have the same thing. And in that mucus layer, there are receptors that will bind with the volatile compounds in the air. Um, they match up depending on their, their shape. And then that triggers the olfactory nerves to send information to your brain. And then from there, it's actually quite complicated. Uh, it seems to involve different parts of your brain, um, including where we form memories, which is why um, scent tends to trigger memories in people. Um, and then from there, you know, your behavior can be influenced by that. It works the same way in birds. Uh, and they appear to use it uh, the same way we do. So they can get information about each other based on scent. They can sense their environment around them. They can find food. They can sense predators nearby. So everything mammals do, basically. And how did you go about studying whether birds do have smell or not? Yeah, that's a great question, because it's not an easy thing to study. Um, but so at the same time, I learned about this idea that birds didn't have a sense of smell. Another person in my lab at Indiana University, her name was Sarah Schrock, she was a graduate student at the time, uh, was interested in the odors that birds give off. So they have... Um, a gland at the base of their tail. It's called a uropygial gland or a preen gland. Um, it secretes preen oil. And when birds preen their feathers, you know, when they rub their beaks through their feathers to help groom themselves, they take oil from this gland and they rub it on their feathers. And Sarah was interested in whether um, 
this oil gave off odors and whether that odor changed when they were in breeding condition. And her idea was that maybe they don't want predators to find them, right? And so it would be adaptive if they didn't, if they gave off less smell when they were nesting so, to help protect the uh, eggs and nestlings in the nest. And so she worked with uh, some chemists there at Indiana University, Helena Sawini and Mila Shnavatni. Um, and they looked at the chemicals in birds that were in breeding condition and non-breeding condition. And they found the exact opposite. They found that birds who were breeding actually gave off more smell which was a little bit of a surprise. And so I saw that and I was like, wow, that's really cool. Maybe that means that birds are using smell in the breeding season. Maybe it's important in finding a mate, you know, same way that mammals do giving off pheromones, that kind of thing. Uh, and so I said, well, first of all, we need to find out, can the birds smell this? And so I took preen oil from, um, you know, different birds and I put it on, I actually added that preen oil to the nest of, um, about 24 different nesting female birds. And I looked at its effect on their behavior. Uh, and I found that um, if I gave them their own preen oil that I had taken, you know, a couple of weeks before, it had no effect. If I gave them the preen oil from a different bird of their same species, um, it had a little bit of an effect, but I, I gave them preen oil from a completely different species. They reacted and they got up and they left the nest quickly. Uh, so that said to me, they, did right? you know, they did recognize the smell um, and didn't last, right? They came back to their nest, the smell evaporated, so it didn't have a long-term effect, uh, but there was definitely a behavioral response. So from there, I uh, became interested in what information is in that preen oil. So I worked with those same chemists at Indiana University to analyze the content and then compare it to aspects of the birds themselves. So I found that um, males and females smell, smell different, birds from different species smell different. Um, it correlates with um, their breeding condition. And then, you know, as the years went by, I kept finding more and more, um, you know, it gives you information about how aggressive they are, for example. So what kind of uh, smells are really important to birds? What, what can they smell apart from uh, them, themselves, basically? <laughs> Yeah, so it's, um, that's a good question. So I think they are able to sense if it's the same species or a different species. Um, and so each species will have like their own species specific set of compounds that gives them an odor. Um, but within that, uh, we find that there is sort of an individual identity um, available there. So they all have the same compounds within a species, but the blends will be a little bit different. So just like we can tell the difference between two different humans like if somebody you know really well like you know their smell if you spend a lot of time with them i think it's the same for birds um, they can also recognize their offspring and their relatives uh, so birds that are related will smell similar and they can detect that wow interesting so does it have anything to do also with the choosing choosing the mate sort of based i don't know maybe on uh, some immune uh, signals yeah, it could. Uh, that's actually turned out to be kind of a complicated story. Uh, but in some species, uh, here's, here's actually what attracted me to studying this in the first place. Um, so uh, your, your odor is related to your immune system in certain ways. And this is something that's been studied in humans. Um, we have a very complicated set of genes called the major histocompatibility complex or MHC for short. Um, and that determines what, um, you know, what, what kind of bacteria your body will tolerate and which ones it will identify as, uh, as invaders or pathogens and it will activate your immune system to attack. To attack. Um, what was interesting to me was the finding in humans and some other animals that um, individuals will prefer to mate with others that have different genes from themselves. Um, and the idea here is that if you choose a mate with different genes from yourself, then your offspring will have a mix of those two um, and they'll be very diverse and they'll be able to identify a lot of different pathogens, right? And they'll be healthier. Um, and so I was really interested in whether birds do this as well. Uh, which is what sparked this entire thing for me. Uh, and which is why someone said to me, well, birds don't have a sense of smell, so they couldn't detect those genes. Um, 
So different studies are finding different things. Um, some studies find that yes, the animals and including birds um, will prefer to mate with birds that have a different set of genes to themselves, but it seems to depend on what's going on in the population. So if you've got, you know, uh, isolated little population, maybe they're endangered and they don't have a lot of genetic diversity, then it might become really important. Uh, but if you're looking at, you know, a big population of birds that are not, you know, at any kind of risk of that, then maybe they, they don't pay attention to it. So there's a lot of variation out there. Uh, that's, honestly, that's one of the things I love about this work is the more questions I ask, the more questions I have, <laughs> you know, it, it's not easy to answer. And what about the environment, the ambient sense? Yeah, that's a, a good question too. Um, so birds do sense their uh, their physical environment with smell. Um, there's some really great studies looking at how birds use their sense of smell to find food. Uh, one of the first was uh, actually by Gabrielle Nevitt at uh, UC Davis, University of California, Davis. She studied how seabirds find food out in the open ocean. And actually what they're able to do is they detect the scent given off by phytoplankton in the sea. Um, and what that tells them is that uh, when there's a large you know, population of phytoplankton, you'll find a large population of fish and squid that are eating it. Um, and that's what the birds like to eat. So they'll, they'll fly out over, you know, long distances and they can detect from pretty far up that scent coming off the ocean and then they'll dive down and find, find a fish. Um, and we see that, you know, other, other examples of birds finding food with scent, um, but they also respond to other things in their environment. Uh, there's a really cool study of blue tits, a, a little European bird, that uh, when they're nesting, they put these aromatic herbs in their nest boxes, uh, and it helps um, sort of keep the nest box, um, it helps fight off ectoparasites, right? It's, it's uh, antiseptic. Um, and they sense, but based on the smell, whether or not those herbs need to be replaced. Right, so they can use it for all kinds of interesting things. And what kind of birds have you come across during your studies? Do you have your favorite ones? <laughs> I have a lot of favorite birds. Uh, most of my work has been with the dark-eyed junco, and this is a, a widespread North American sparrow. Um, they are usually found like in the mountains or up in Canada, but in the wintertime, they're very common birds at, um, at bird feeders throughout the U.S. and Canada. So they're a common little bird, uh, but I, I find them just really fascinating to, to study and to watch. Um, I've also worked with uh, lance-tailed mannequins in Panama, which are these really cool um, uh, South American birds or, or Central American birds that uh, when they uh, interact with it, when they are attracting mates, the males actually pair up. They form partnerships, two males, and they have to do this dance together to attract females, which is just really fascinating to watch. And then I guess my my true favorite bird, though, is um, the brown-headed cowbird. Um, this bird is, uh, they are a brood parasite, um, which means that they don't take care of their own eggs. They'll lay eggs in another bird's nest, another species, and that host bird will have to raise their nestling. And uh, I just find them fascinating. Um, I like to joke that I'm just like them. I don't have any maternal instincts either because <laughs> I, I don't have children. Um, but also like, it's just interesting that they still grow up to be cowbirds. They still figure out how to be cowbirds and they still learn their species song. Um, and that must be kind of tough on them. Uh, but also, uh, I was became interested in their smell, and because I was thinking about okay, in that first study I did, it was dark-eyed juncos, and I put preen oil on their nest, and I tested whether it affected you know their behavior. And when I put preen oil from a different species, they reacted. So if that's true, why don't they notice when a cowbird lays an egg in their nest? Does that mean that maybe cowbirds don't give off a smell? And so I got permission to catch some cowbirds too. And I went out and I caught a few cowbirds and I brought them back to the lab. Um, I actually had them and we transport them in little brown paper lunch bags, basically. It's you know safe for the bird and they're, you can throw them away so they don't infect, you know, you don't spread disease among different birds. And then I got back to the lab and I opened up the, the bag with a bird in it and it suddenly smelled like fresh baked cookies. And I, I was like, where is that smell coming from? Who has cookies? And I realized it was actually 
the 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 cowbird smelled like cookies um and so i was you know of course shoving this bird in everyone's face in the lab saying smell this bird smell this bird um so i was wrong they don't they do have a smell so that's not the reason why you know why juncos don't notice their eggs so um that was a hypothesis that was immediately uh disproven <laughs> Uh, but I just think they're they're really interesting, interesting birds. So that's what they put in in those houses that go in up for sale, cowbirds. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think it's uh, that sweet smell that is sort of appealing to the birds in the nest that they don't really tend to recognize it as an invader? That's a good question. Um, I don't know that they leave much of their their feather smell behind, you know, um, they're, they're dropping off an egg and going. But also the other thing I had noticed in that study I did with preen oil is that, yes, they reacted to it right away. Um, but then within an hour, they'd come back to their nest and we're back to normal. So if there is a smell, it goes away pretty quickly. So it doesn't have any long term effect on their behavior. Mm, and that, that way they can be fooled basically exactly yeah so what roles do microorganisms like bacteria play in the bird smells yeah that's a great question um yeah, so many of our smells and many of the bird smells too are actually produced not by their own bodies, but by bacteria that live in the scent glands. And this was something I had not thought about. So when I was studying all these chemicals in bird preen oil and understanding what was there, people kept asking me at conferences, what's the genetic pathway to produce these odors? You know, what is controlling it? And I had no idea. Um, and then I was giving a talk uh, at a group meeting at Michigan State University where I, I worked for 12 years. And um, Kevin Tice, who became my collaborator, he was a postdoc then, he was looking at my data. And he's like, all these compounds that you've listed are, um, are produced by bacteria. They're all known metabolic byproducts of bacteria. Have you looked at the, you know, the bacteria in the preen glands? And I was like, no, that never occurred to me. Uh, at the time, Kevin was studying hyena scent glands. So spotted hyenas in Africa have these, um, these scent pouches at their, around the anus. And actually many mammals have lots of these kinds of scent glands. Um, and inside there are, uh, there's like a paste, like a green yellow paste. And when they scent mark something, they rub that paste on it. That paste is full of bacteria that is feeding on the secretions of the animal inside the, the scent gland. And it's actually the odors produced by the bacteria that the other hyenas smell and recognize as a scent mark from, you know, one of their group members or a different group member. Uh, so Kevin and I started looking at the preen glands of dark-eyed juncos and we took swabs and you know, used DNA, DNA sequencing. And we discovered that there was uh, a very rich and diverse bacterial community in the uropigial gland. Um, and then we did a bunch of experiments to test you know, whether the same thing was happening in birds that was happening in mammals, whether the bacteria were actually responsible for the odors. So we did one experiment where we injected antibiotics into some birds um, and we found that yes, that changed their odor. And then we did another experiment where we actually cultured the bacteria that I, from preen oil that I took from wild juncos. We cultured the bacteria in petri dishes, and then we measured the odor given off by the bacteria by itself, you know, with no bird around. And it was actually producing the same odors that the birds give off. So that was a pretty cool, you know, I think it was the first experiment to show that in birds, the same process is happening. There are bacteria in the scent glands producing the odors that, um, that birds um, recognize as their own sense. And I think this is just fascinating because um, not only is it this like multi-step process that's involving bacteria, but you also pick up bacteria from the environment around you and from the other people or birds you associate with. And so that changes your bacterial composition and it changes your odor. Uh, so I'm just uh, currently really thinking about like, what does this mean for what you know, what contributes to your odor and what your odor tells someone else about you. Yeah, that's really interesting because as you say, it can change throughout time and it can be a sort of a signifier to some really bad alterations and can impact the health as well, isn't it? Yeah. So if an animal is sick, they'll smell really different, right? Their, their bacteria will be different. Um, 
you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, birds that are related to each other smell alike. And another thing that I found is that the reason for that is because they're sharing bacteria. Um, so it turns out that uh, it doesn't actually matter if they're genetically related to their father, for example. Uh, so in juncos, like in many songbirds, um, the, the father that's raising the, the nestlings isn't always their genetic father, mm -hmm. right? There's a, we call that extra pair paternity. So the male and female form a social pair, but maybe they mate with somebody outside the pair, you know, just like humans sometimes. Um, but that, that social mate, he'll still help raise the offspring. Um, but we compared bacteria in the preen glands of uh, the nestlings and their parents. And it turns out uh, they're the same level of similarity to the father, whether he's their genetic father or not. And that's because they're interacting with each other. He's helping to feed them. They're sharing bacteria. Um, and also the same is true for the nestlings in the nest. If they're all full siblings, of course you would expect them to be similar because they're genetically you know, pretty close to each other. But if they're half siblings, maybe they have different fathers and that happened at a lot of my nests, um, they're the same level of similar, you know, at their, um, at their bacteria and at the smell they give off. So they smell like siblings, no matter what. Hmm. It's kind of similar that uh, uh, your smell gets quite close to your pet smell. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a really interesting finding from studies of humans. Um, you know, if you have roommates or a spouse or a family mm -hmm. that you live with, you all share your bacteria. You also share bacteria with your pet dogs. And um, yeah, all the people in the house will share that bacteria. It seemed to be, I don't think they studied cats, but uh, dogs in particular, um, they bring in a lot from the outdoors on their feet. And uh, that is that ends up in, on our feet and hands too. So how different is the olfactory system of birds to other animals like mammals and, and others? Yeah. Um, that's a good question because that's also one of the reasons that some scientists thought that smell wasn't important to birds is that there is a pretty big difference um, in mammals and actually in many vertebrate animals. Um, there are actually two systems of olfaction. So there's the main olfactory system, and that's the one where you've got, you know, the olfactory receptors and the mucus lining of your nose. Um, and if those send signals through the olfactory nerves back to your brain, and that's what you typically use to sense airborne scents, um, or, you know, if you're a fish, you know, uh, volatile com or compounds in the water, but there's a secondary olfactory system called the accessory olfactory system. And this involves something called the vomeronasal organ. And in mammals, this is something we'll see mammals using a lot. So like if you're walking your dog and they're really interested in where another dog has recently scent marked or, or you basically peed, um, they'll kind of open their mouth. Um, mm -hmm. And you'll see this in cats too. Like they smell another cat. If you, if you were petting another cat before you came home or if somebody rubbed on your, on your pants, they'll like kind of open their mouth and show their teeth and like squinch up their nose a little bit. And what they're doing there is giving access to their, their vomeronasal organ, which is in the soft palate of the mouth. And that system uh, detects some of these bigger compounds, bigger uh, molecules like um, protein-based um, signals. So things that we think of as pheromones are often these heavier protein-based compounds that you won't smell like with your regular um, olfactory system, but you'll sense it through this vomer nasal organ. Birds don't have this entire accessory olfactory system. Um, for some reason, over the course of evolution, you know, some other things were going on in birds and they don't have those. Uh, but that doesn't mean they, they're, that their uh, regular olfactory system, you know, doesn't work just fine. It does. Uh, here's another really interesting parallel. Uh, in most adult humans, we don't have that system either. Uh, even though our evolutionary ancestors do, um, a lot of humans and, and some of the great apes we lack it entirely. So uh, I think that's a really interesting parallel between birds and humans, because um, another fun fact uh, is we also like to believe that humans don't have a very good sense of smell compared to other mammals. Um, and 
there's also really interesting studies showing that actually we're pretty good at that too. Uh, we just don't think of it the same way we think of, you know, seeing and hearing. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice though, they really mean flavor. Like in your face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either, but it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice, anything but subtle. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hmm, interesting. And do we know anything about the evolutionary history of olfactory system in birds? Is it uh, that our common ancestor had something that uh, sort of diverged into the ones we have in mammals and the one we have in birds? Or is it uh, more like convergent evolution? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so it's a little bit of both. Um, there are some good studies of uh, olfactory receptor genes. Um, and those are fun to study because, you know, in your eyes, you have like three color receptors, right? In olfaction, it's not like, you know, three smells that make up all smells. It's actually hundreds and hundreds of compounds. So we've got hundreds and hundreds of genes for olfactory receptors that each, you know, pick up different compounds. Um, and it turns out that birds do make quite a few, you know, they make a few hundred olfactory receptors depending on the species, which is similar to what we see in mammals. Um, so there definitely is some shared evolutionary history there that, you know, we've all come from the same common ancestor producing those kinds of genes. But um, beyond that, within birds, there's been additional evolution. So there are some olfactory receptors. There are families of olfactory receptors in birds that have grown, and they've, they've made more mutations and more different genes of these that we don't see in other kinds of animals. So yeah, they, they, they've got some shared ancestry with um, other kinds of animals, and they, that shows up in their olfactory receptors. Uh, but birds have also... Um, evolved their own. That might be, we, we don't really know what they do. It's very hard to track from olfactory receptor to the smell that it is uh, responding to, but um, who knows if it's, you know, bird specific smells or if it's just a different way of them receiving the same smells. Uh, birds are really cool in that like, they evolutionarily have evolved different ways to solve the same problem. Hmm. So we like, we like to say that, you know, bird brains are, are, you know, you call someone a bird brain if you think they're dumb because birds have small brains. Well, sure, birds have physically small brains because they have to fly, but it turns out that those neurons are really tightly packed inside there, right? So they've got a different solution to the problem of having a good brain, but you still need it to be lightweight so you can fly. So you just see this over and over again in birds. They're, they're so fascinating. Do you think in the future we're going to see some explosive sniffing birds? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, who knows? <laughs> so how does this sense of smell impact their behavior? So is it really crucial for birds' uh, relationships, sort of? Yeah, I think it can be. Um, it, you know, we were talking earlier about whether birds use um, odor to choose mates. Um, and sometimes it seems like yes, sometimes it seems like no. Um, but more interestingly, there's some evidence 
that they actually use smell in other kinds of relationships. Um, so this was a study by um, Louisa Amo who looked at, um, the idea was that they had uh, house finches and they were giving them the option between the smell of a male, they were giving males the option between the smell of another male and the smell of a female. They were expecting the males to go towards the smell of a female because you expect this odor is important in mate choice. Well, they found really mixed results. Some of the males prefer the females, some of the males preferred other males. Mm. And when they looked back at it, they discovered that it had to do with the condition of the male in who was do, making the choice. So if he was, say, in poor condition and the male scent that he was you know, smelling was from a male in, in better condition, he avoided that male and he went towards the female instead. But if the opposite was true, if the male doing the choosing was a, like a good, you know, healthy, strong bird, and he smelled the odor of a male in, in poorer condition, then he would go towards that male scent. So it seems oh, wow. to be important. Yeah, it seems to be important in um, uh, in, in competition and aggression. Uh, and so I did a study uh, in collaboration with my friend Kim Rossfall at Indiana University, where we looked at whether smell communicated information about aggressive behavior. And studying aggression in birds is actually a lot of fun. Um, so you, if you're looking at wild birds, uh, we would do what's called a simulated territorial intrusion or STI for short. Um, and so you basically have a bird in a cage and you have a speaker and you find a bird's um, home territory out in the field and you carry that bird in a cage and your speaker, you set it down somewhere in the middle of the territory and you play bird song. So we were looking at juncos, we played junco song and the um, local male uh, was like, Who, who's on my territory, right? And he hears the song and he comes out and he sees the bird in the cage and he'll you know, attack the bird in the cage. And the bird in the cage is unhurt, don't worry. Um, it's basically, he just kind of swoops over and sings at it. It's not, not too bad. Um, so, but we found that uh, we took those measurements of how aggressively that male responded. And we found that their odor predicted that, right? So we also took prene oil from those males and there was a relationship between the way they smelled and how aggressively they reacted. So if two birds, two males were to meet each other, they could get a signal like, Oh, this guy's going to beat me up. I'm going to go now. Right. Or, Oh, I can beat this guy up. Right. So, so it can be really important, uh, at that level. Um, and it, it could be true in females too. Uh, we don't give female birds enough credit, but many of species, uh, females have to work really hard to defend uh, their nesting territory from other females. And uh, smell could play a really important role there as they're you know, figuring out how to divide up the territories. So we hear quite a lot about the mate choice in, in, in the female birds, especially something like peacock, for example, that, uh, uh, you know, is very visually attractive and uh, signifying that he can be so pretty and still survive and stuff like this. Does the smell impact the mate choice for female birds? Uh, it might. Um, smell could be important in females choosing a male. Uh, it could be important, for example, in sensing whether the male is healthy, um, whether they're compatible genetically. So uh, we were talking a little bit about those immune system genes earlier. It could tell them whether, oh, this male you know, has immune genes that I want to pass on to my offspring. Um, it could also be uh, important in uh, other kinds of, under, understanding other aspects of a male's um, uh, biology. So. Uh, one study I did with lance-tailed mannequins in uh, Panama, uh, we were trying to understand, you know, whether how females were choosing which males to mate with, among other things, and did, did certain males smell differently from others. This is the species in which uh, the males form partnerships. There's an alpha male and a beta male, and they do this classic leapfrog dance when the females you know, watch go around and they watch all the pairs of males doing their dances and decide who to mate with. Um, and in this case, they always mate with the alpha male, almost never the beta male. And so we were wondering, do alpha males smell differently from beta males? Is, you know, does that does that affect her decision? And we didn't find a difference between alpha males and beta males, uh, but we did find that the uh, odor related to um, how generally heterozygous the males were. And so heterozygosity is the word for um, genetic diversity within an individual. So um, 
I'm trying to think of the easiest way to explain this. So we have two sets of chromosomes, right? So each gene, we have actually two copies. And if those two copies are exactly the same, that's called homozygous. And if they're two copies are different, you know, one from your mother, one from your father, that's called heterozygous. And generally we assume that having a lot of heterozygosity in your genome means that you're probably healthier, right? Whereas if you've got um, a lot of homozygosity in your genome, that could mean that like maybe, uh, maybe you, if you inherit say a genetic disease that's recessive, then you, you don't have a chance to, for it to like be hidden, right? If you have two recessive genes, that's what's expressed. So it's more of an advantage to be heterozygous. Uh, but back to the birds, um, my collaborator, uh, Emily Duvall, had found previously, and her grad students had found previously, that uh, these birds, the females preferred to mate with males that were heterozygous, um, but there was no obvious physical difference between them, so it wasn't clear how they were uh, detecting that. And what we found when we looked at their prenoil odors is that uh, more heterozygous males smelled differently than less heterozygous males. So that might have been an important signal to the females to decide which male to mate with. That's fascinating. So uh, what about the city-dwelling birds? How does the environment, especially the air pollution, uh, impact bird smell? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you asked about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we did this uh, study of urban birds in San Diego. So this is a, a really fun case study looking at urbanization in uh, in birds. So dark-eyed juncos are typically not city birds, right? They, they live in forests, um, particularly mountainous forests, uh, but the environment's been changing over the last few decades pretty rapidly. And beginning in 1980, um, people started noticing that juncos were staying on the campus at UC San Diego year round. Now, they usually only saw them in the winter because, you know, it was too cold and snowy in the mountains, but then they would go back up to the mountains in the summer. Um, and there were maybe a dozen pairs that stopped, stopped migrating in the, in the spring. They stayed. And over time, those birds actually very rapidly evolved some differences from their ancestors in the mountains. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, my collaborator, Jonathan Atwell, who was a grad student in Ellen Ketterson's lab at Indiana did his entire uh, dissertation project understanding what had changed in these birds. Um, so they, they're a little bit smaller than the mountain birds. They are, um, they're less aggressive towards each other, which is good because they're actually living, they're city birds, right? They're actually living much closer to each other and they have smaller territories. Uh, the males helped help more with raising the offspring, which is also good because another change is that they lay more eggs throughout the, the summer. Um, the climate is very mild and nice, at, you know, at UC San Diego. And instead of two clutches of eggs per summer, they're actually laying about four clutches of eggs. So that takes, um, you know, it, it takes a lot more work to successfully raise all of those nestlings. Um, and going along with that, there's also less um, extra pair paternity, uh, or a fancy word for infidelity. Um, we don't see as many cases of the male not being related to his children. Um, so all of this was going together. And uh, what Jonathan found was that um, it seemed to be a single change in the system secreting testosterone um, that then had these cascading effects that um, affected all of these traits uh, to help them adapt very quickly to this new, new to them urban environment. And I worked with Jonathan and I was curious about whether the city birds and the mountain birds smelled differently. Uh, and I found that they do. Uh, there was a significant difference between the two populations. And one of the things I'd like to do in the future is to go back. It's been a while. Um, I'd, I'd like to go back and look at whether bacteria is involved in changing that odor, because you would expect that birds living in the city might have different bacteria from birds living in a forest. And what about their ability to sense smell? So for example, pigeons who live all around us and uh, especially around the uh, streets so where the cars are and exhaust fumes, do they have impaired sense of smell, do you think? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know if anybody has looked at that yet. Um, I mean, I feel like I have an impaired sense of smell mm -hmm. when I'm around yeah. exhaust. It's so strong, it will block everything out. 
Um, yeah, that, I think that's a good question that would be helpful to understand how this changing world is going to affect the future of other species, right? Are we, are we interfering with their mate choice? Are we interfering with their, their normal functions? Um, and, and we know in some ways we definitely are. Um, there's, you know, like the light levels at night, uh, in cities really change animal behavior, especially bird behavior. Uh, but smell is this, this question that, uh, I don't, there's a lot of opportunities there. Anybody listening wants to study this, go for it. <laughs> so what are some of the burning questions you still have uh, that you really want to answer? Oh gosh, I have so many questions. Um, yeah, so I, I am really interested in this idea of bacteria. Because um, one of my questions is, okay, we've got these odors and they actually tell you a lot about the individual, like the individual bird. It will tell you a lot about their, you know, what sex they are, how healthy they are, whether or not they're breeding, et cetera, et cetera, you know, who they're related to. Um, but if that odor is... Uh, produced by bacteria. And if we can change our bacteria by interacting with different birds, right? If they can change depending on who they're interacting with and that changes their odor, then how does that information stay reliable? Um, and this gets really complicated really fast, but I think the immune system is probably involved. I think it comes back around to those immune genes, the MHC immune genes um, that will be affecting what bacteria our bodies tolerate, right? So you would only keep the bacteria that your immune system didn't attack. And so that could still be a way that it affects your odor in a way that relates back to your biology. But like this becomes so complex, it's pretty difficult to figure out the right way to study it. Uh, so that's a, um, a plan I have uh, coming up is to, to look at that and what really controls our bacteria, what really... Um, controls the, the odor that they give off. But yeah, I change, you know, I get interested in so many things and I follow questions down these little rabbit holes all the time. And what about the case birds, something like, um, like chickens, for example, that are bred in a big farms and especially if they're given quite a lot of antibiotics as well. Does this really impact their health, do you think, in this, in this kind of area, in a smell area? <laughs> I'm sure it does. Uh, one thing we found in our own work is that when you bring birds into captivity, their, uh, their, bacteria, their bacterial communities change pretty quickly. Um, in our study, we found that they became much less diverse. Um, it could also be that they are you know, sharing bacteria, you know, pathogenic bacteria with each other, which is one of the reasons why they're given antibiotics. Um, and we also know from a study I did that antibiotics affects the, the smell you give off. It affects the bacteria. So it kills off a bunch of the bacteria and you're not making your regular smell. Um, so yeah, I would expect that captive, you know, egg laying chickens on farms or, or, you know, meat chickens on farms would, would have very different smell from, uh, from a wild chicken. Um, and yeah, that would potentially affect a whole cascade of behaviors. And now thinking about the bigger picture, so why do you think it is important for our society, for scientists, researchers, uh, like somebody like you, just really go ahead with the very interesting and curious uh, you know, mindset that uh, you want to find out much more in detail about something that no one else, uh, well, I'm not saying not, uh, not no one else, but uh, uh, quite a few people <laughs> were thinking about. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think it's really important to question our assumptions. Um, the whole reason I started studying birds' sense of smell was because somebody claimed that birds didn't have a sense of smell. And so many people had never questioned that assumption, and it just sounded wrong to me. And if we, you know, if we, we hear assumptions like that and we don't question them, then it leads to us not knowing stuff about the world around us right like we're still there's still so much to ask and know and I, it's important to be curious and i really care a lot about basic science you know some some people think well what's the point of that you know you're not curing cancer you're not saving endangered species and you know that's that's true um but there is really about 
important value in, in appreciating and understanding the world around us. And to do that, you've got to be curious. And what discoveries on your journey to writing your book, The Secret Perfume of Birds, surprised you the most? <laughs> oh, I think it all surprised me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wasn't surprised to learn that birds had a sense of smell, but uh, I was surprised that my simple little uh, experiment w worked so conclusively. Um, I have found over and over that it's always much more complicated than I expected. Um, bodies are complicated. Uh, and, and then when you bring bacteria into it, you discover it's even more complicated. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's all just been a really eye-opening uh, quest to understand what's going around. And I, I, I guess I do know more than I did when I started, but I, I know more about what I don't know already, you know? And do you ever ponder what kind of smells the dinosaurs produce, non-avian <laughs> or avian ones? Do you have like a favorite dinosaur you really like to smell? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we're pretty sure that dinosaurs probably had similar um, similar capabilities to birds when you think about smell. So, uh, you know, we don't know a lot about it. I did see this great exhibit at... Um, Uh, the Los Angeles Museum of Natural History had, had a great exhibit about um, dinosaur senses. And I was like really worried that they were going to say, oh, well, you know, dinosaurs didn't have a sense of smell, but I found the smell section. And they're like, yeah, they probably did. And here's some ideas about that. Um, my favorite was actually always the Brachiosaurus. Um, I like those big herbivorous, gentle looking <laughs> dinosaurs. Uh, and I bet the herbivores probably smelled better than the carnivores. So yeah, I would like to smell a brachiosaur. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> right, well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So could you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Yeah, I've actually taken, since publishing the book, I've taken another huge turn in my life. Um, I took an opportunity to run a new research center. So for 12 years, I was the managing director for the Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution and Action at Michigan State University. Um, and that was great, but the center was kind of winding down. And this brand new center here at Oregon State, the Center for Oldest Ice Exploration opened up and they were looking for a managing director, the same job I had for the same type of center. And I was like, ice, that sounds interesting. Um, and so now I'm here learning about ice in Antarctica and ice coring and using uh, those air bubbles in the ice to understand you know, what the climate was like millions of years ago. Um, brand new field for me. I think it's fascinating. Um, uh, and uh, I don't know that I'll personally do research in this area, but I sure am learning a lot. And I'm looking forward to someday going to Antarctica with some of the scientists and helping, uh, helping drill ice cores. I think it'll be fun. Oh, wow. That is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I describe in the book like how I've taken all these weird turns. You know, I started as an English major, PhD in anthropology, you know, postdoc in biology, and now here I am in, in you know, studying ice cores. Uh, and, you know, we like to think that these scientific careers have this very straightforward path. And um, I just want everyone out there to know that it's not always like that. And it's okay if it's not like that, right? Like, Life can take some interesting turns. And I think that's, I think that's great. Astrobiology is going to be next. <laughs> oh, I hope so. That would be fun. <laughs> and where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Yeah. So if you just Google the secret perfume of birds, you should find me. I think I'm the only person with that title. Um, you can uh, also Google my name, Danielle Whitaker. Um, and uh Yeah, that's, uh, I'm pretty easy to find on the internet. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This was a lot of fun.